When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I wanted to let you know about a special offer for fans of this show. You can now subscribe directly to Big Mood, Little Mood for as little as $2.99 a month. With that subscription, you'll get an additional episode of the podcast every Friday, which means more advice and more conversations on relationships, self-assessments, and feelings from the monumental to the minute. And you get all of this ad-free. To sign up now for Big Mood, Little Mood Plus, go to slate.com slash mood plus. Again, that's slate.com slash mood plus. And thanks so much for your support. Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Molly West Duffy, an expert in organizational and leadership development. She's the co-author of the best-selling book, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work, and Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. Molly, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm so looking forward to it, not least because You know, I think I've been able to supply you with plenty of feelings in the letters today, although I don't think any of them have a lot to do with work. So, you know, my apologies there for taking us a little bit outside of your wheelhouse, but there's definitely big feelings, lots of feelings, complicated relationships between feelings. Um, I, I don't know how these letters struck you and you saw them all in a row. I definitely feel like I stepped back and was like, wow, this is, um, this is big. Yeah, they are big. And it's such a good reminder that, you know, we're all going through things and that what you see on the surface is not always what is actually happening. Yeah, I I think there's so much about this um, that feels like a a sort of Rorschach test, especially these first two letters where I, I felt, I don't always feel this way, but I felt with almost immediate clarity in letters number one and two, oh, I see this very differently from our letter writer. Um, not necessarily in the sense of, oh, I think our letter writer is doing something wrong um, or has like the wrong perspective. Just um, I often, I think, find myself sort of even against my own inclination, just feeling like I agree with the worldview of whoever's writing to me, probably partly because they're able to, you know, uh, give me all the information. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of nice to feel a little bit of a, a sense of differing perspective, at least for me. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, I'm going to try to condense this first one. It is long, but, you know, it it has to do with a uh, large and unwieldy and slightly online friend group, which always requires lots of backstory. So the subject is how to support extremely private friend. I've known my friend Kevin for over seven years. He's kind and generous, but he keeps parts of his life extremely private. Kevin's queer, but not out to his very conservative family, and I think he plans on never coming out to them, since he doesn't want to risk hurting their relationship. He's also a very devout Christian, and part of a large Christian denomination which is also anti-gay, although he himself is a leftist. I think this has led him to compartmentalize a lot. 
Until recently, Kevin lived near another close mutual friend, Harry. They'd see each other in person every weekend, while the three of us and some other mutual friends have had a standing online weekly hangout for years. Kevin's lease recently ended, and Kevin announced that he was going to move to another state to live with his partner, who none of us have ever heard anything about. I now know a few facts about Kevin's partner, Billy. They're queer, about 10 years younger than Kevin, and have some sort of ongoing mental health struggle. I only learned this much after some rigorous questioning. Kevin has said that his policy is that he'll answer questions about his life if he's asked directly, but he'll never offer anything himself. While this extreme privacy is sometimes frustrating, it's now starting to really affect our friendship. He's much less consistent about attending our weekly hangouts. Sometimes his excuse is tiredness and sometimes nothing at all. His communication outside of these hangouts has also dropped significantly. Harry hosts a yearly Thanksgiving and all of us try to attend. Kevin's always been there. And this was the first year since COVID where we were going to reconnect in person. Kevin was evasive and noncommittal when asked if he was going to come and about a month beforehand stated that he couldn't come at all. Harry and I were both crestfallen at this. When we asked why, Kevin said that Billy was going through a hard time and he didn't think he could leave them. What was alarming to me was that he couldn't imagine leaving Billy alone even for a few days and that he was predicting this would be true even a month in the future. This suggests to me that his care for Billy is consistently intense and might explain why he is so often too exhausted to socialize. Kevin opened up a bit to me after this and said he wasn't happy he wouldn't be able to come to the hangouts as often and that he was sad he wouldn't be able to attend Thanksgiving. Kevin never wants to hurt anyone. He stays in a job that seriously underpays him because he knows if he leaves, they'll never find anyone who can do the same work for so little. I know of one prior relationship of his, also with another young queer person who had very serious mental health struggles. I'm glad he cares for others, but I worry he's not prioritizing his own needs. I want to support him without putting him off. His intense compartmentalization and private life make this very hard to approach, and I'm really distressed to see him suffering. All right, I brought the word countdown a little bit, but I, I realize that's still um, <laughs> a, a big one. Did you have a kind of immediate reaction upon reading this letter or a sense of what you thought the letter writer ought to consider or do first? Yeah, well, first of all, it's so tough and it's tough on both sides. Like we can see that this is a really tough time period for Kevin and presumably for Billy as well. And then, you know, also for the author of this letter, I mean, it it's, I've been there of having a friendship that you feel like is falling apart and you really value the friendship and you would like it to stay the same. And there's some loss there. I'm sure there's some, you know, are we not good enough for him? You know, why can't he come and hang out with us? So it's hard. It's big feelings, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that I like to remember about friendships is that they can come and go. So I have had friendships where I've been very intensely meeting with people and seeing them quite frequently, talking with them quite frequently. And then something happens in one of our lives and we stop being as close of friends. And and what I think is really important to do in those moments is to communicate that that's happening. Because otherwise it can feel like the other person is ghosting you or you can be really offended of like, why is this person not hanging out with me as much? And and I see that Kevin is doing that a little bit. So the mm-hmm. fact that he said, you know, I'm not happy that I'm not able to do this is, is he's opening up a, a little bit about this. In an ideal world, what, what Kevin might say is, I'm going through a lot right now and I can't commit as highly to this, high level to this friendship as I used to be able to 
doesn't mean that I don't still love you and I still value you. This is just a time period in my life. And that allows the other person, the author of this letter to go, okay, right, this is not personal. And, you know, I might need to give him some space, but, but again, like he may be able to come back into your life in a future date. And this has happened to me several times. I've, I have had friends disappear and I have disappeared to friends when I have gone through difficult times. And I felt like I just, I didn't have the energy. I couldn't put it in what I used to into the friendship um, or something about the friendship was like triggering to me, depending Mm. on what I was going through. So yeah, I I have lots more to say, but that's sort of, I think there needs to be an acceptance here that that friendship has ups and downs and we have, and hopefully both lives will be very long and, and we don't know, Kevin might come back around. Yeah. I think all that's really useful to bear in mind. Um, I think especially that that bit about life being long, Kevin might come back around. I want to encourage this letter writer to separate some of the, I think, really understandable concerns that they express here from um, some of the unstated grievances, uh, which again, you know, I can appreciate. They don't strike me as, as you know, un- wildly unreasonable. But th- there is, I think, a real difference between Kevin's usually not very forthcoming. Um, he's making kind of a big decision that feels a little abrupt, and I'm not really sure how to connect with him in, in light of how private he is uh, versus I'm really upset that he's missing Thanksgiving. Because like another way to me of putting this, like it, the letter writer kind of described it as like he's breaking his perfect attendance record. A- and I see it more as like this guy's never made his own plans for Thanksgiving for seven years. I get that you'll miss him and that it's been hard not seeing each other through you know the pandemic. But I would also maybe encourage you to not dwell on the sort of like, this is our only chance to all see each other again, so much as like, you know, guys allowed to make a different plan after seven years in a row of coming to Thanksgiving without everyone, I think, treating him like he's left them all to like die in the desert. So, you know, that's one thing where I would really encourage you, letter writer, to let that one go, especially because since there's so much information you still don't have, I'm really curious when you got him to open up more afterwards, you know, maybe he was saying he was really sad to be missing Thanksgiving in the way that you think he was. And maybe it was more he could tell you were really upset and wanted to sort of placate you. Or or maybe it was just, you know, something else entirely. Like, I'm sad I'll be missing Thanksgiving, but I'll actually be glad to be, you know, moving in with Billy, who I'm really excited about. And so it's not like, oh, this is awful and out of my hands. I, I, again, I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's possible it's exactly the way that you remember it, letter writer. It's possible it's something else in between. Just, I think, with somebody this private, um, it, it's very easy to sometimes, in the absence of more details, create a satisfying narrative, filling in the blanks for yourself. I've certainly done that um, in my own life. And I, I would just want to caution you against that here. So I think in the areas where you're inclined to be a little bit lightly resentful or or maybe even to mask your resentment with concern, I would encourage you to replace some of that with curiosity. So the stuff about he doesn't want to leave Billy alone for a few days, again, maybe that's because he's he's about to take on a ton of really overwhelming caretaking and he feels awful about it, but maybe he just actually didn't know how to say, I'd really rather spend Thanksgiving with Billy this year. I, I think that's a possibility at least, don't you? Totally. Totally. We don't, I mean, maybe he feels bad for, maybe Kevin feels bad for leaving the friend group. And so he doesn't want to make them feel bad by saying, oh, like I'm actually excited to have Thanksgiving with, with my partner. I mean, yeah, exactly. We, we don't really know. And I think too, there's a pressure with 
um, opening up to larger friend groups. So I think what the author of this letter has done is good. So when he said, you know, it sounds like he reached out to him one-on-one. Kevin opened up to me about this and expressed that he was not happy. Like, I think it might be easier for Kevin to share what's going on, not in a group setting. Um, We Mm -hmm. know that Kevin is a private person. And so like sharing with a whole group of people is scarier than sharing with one person. So, you know, maybe continuing to not making him feel bad for missing the group things, but continuing to reach out one-on-one. And it, you know, if the letter writer is correct and, and Kevin is going through a hard time and is having to be a caretaker with Billy, I think the best way to do that is to continue to show up and offer support, but not have any expectations. So um, my co-author Liz and I talk about this in the book, like texting people and saying, hey, I'm just thinking about you. No need to respond. I just want you to know that, you know, I care about you. It's Mm -hmm. a really great way to, you know, it's not that the person doesn't need to call you back. They don't need to feel bad about not calling you back. Um, they don't need right, to feel you're not assigning them homework. Yeah, it's just a like, hey, I love you. I'm here. I'm thinking about you. Sending things can be really nice. So um, when I was going through a really tough time and my husband was sort of acting as my caretaker, we had a friend who just sent us some food. Like they sent us a bunch of tamales that could be frozen. And it was such a nice gesture. And, you know, we we didn't have to do anything back. It was just like, hey, we love you and we're thinking about you. So you know, this is really about giving from a place of unconditional love for this friend without needing to keep score or think about, you know, how much Kevin used to give and now how much Kevin is giving. It's about saying, I love you as a person and I'm here for you no matter what you're going through. And I just want to keep showing up for you. Yeah, I think all that makes a great deal of sense. And I think the only thing that I would want to add to that is on a totally different level, letter writer, you know, you mentioned that Kevin has like a policy, which uh, his general policy is just, I, I don't tell anyone about stuff going on in my life unless I'm directly asked, which sure sounds like it's a leftover from his homophobic conservative family. Like it's very literally don't ask, don't, or no, it's not literally don't ask, don't tell. In fact, it's sort of the reverse, but it feels like of a piece with it, which is like, I'll answer questions like I'm sort of in a hostage situation, but I don't really want to be here and I'm not going to volunteer information. And again, I don't know how he said that. I don't know in what context that came up. There's lots of different reasons people have for uh, adopting sort of like tentative, um, close to the vest policies. But I, I would just maybe gently inquire or encourage him to consider something else. And then if he doesn't, don't presume that you have more information than you really have. So I think it would be one thing to say to him, I will always respect your policy. I would love to know more about what's going on in your life just because you're my friend and and you're important to me, but I really don't want to pry. And so I don't want to ask questions that are going to feel kind of like intrusive or tiresome to answer. So, you know, I I would love it if you would occasionally share something with me unprompted, but I'm never going to, you know, try to make you. And I hope you will in turn let me know if I'm asking questions that do feel intrusive and that you would rather I lay off. Um, And I will respect that too. So there's like an Mm -hmm. invitation not to completely reorient his relationship to privacy, but at least after years of knowing him, offering the possibility of a slightly freer, easier give and take. And then really, you know, not pushing if he kind of stays the course. And, And again, that doesn't mean he must not really care about you or he must not really trust you or that you must be totally wrong about all your assessments of his relationship to work, his family, his partners, his friends, et cetera. Just 
a, a surefire way, I think, to lose a friendship with a really private person is to say something like, hey, I believe your relationship to your conservative family, your relationship to your conservative religion, your relationship to your, you know, uh, exploitative employer and your new partner are all part of the same thing. And here's how I think you should do things instead. Which, to be clear, I don't think the letter writer is about to go say this right, to Kevin. Right, 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 I just want to warn them against that. Like, that would, I think, send a, a private person, you know, fleeing for the hills. So, you know, if you want to talk to Kevin about work or ask him how that's going or encourage him to value himself more, have the conversation about work. Don't try to bring the family stuff into that. Don't try to bring the religion into that. Don't try to bring the partner into that. If you want to have a conversation about Billy, have a conversation about Billy. Keep those fields kind of separate because I think, I, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with a friend where it kind of became apparent that they had this idea of different areas of your life being linked in ways that maybe they hadn't shared with you previously. And you're like, oh, you mm-hmm. you have this kind of theory about like some of my, I don't know, character defects or like um, bad habits that may or may not have some truth to them, but definitely make me feel as though I've been studied by like some sociologist who now wants to correct me. And that can just be really off-putting, even if it's super well-meaning. I don't know if that's something that you've ever experienced yourself. I, yeah, I, I love the way you said that. That's such a great way to put it, which is like, your friend has a theory. <laughs> you're like, but you're my friend. I don't need you to have a theory. Like I go to a psychologist or a therapist and they can have theories, you know, but I pay them for that. And I'm in a space where I'm open to hearing that. I think that's the other thing is like, I show up to a friend and I'm not, I'm not ready to show up for therapy. I'm not ready to have you share with me your theories about my, <laughs> my family of origin or what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless that's something that we talk about all the time and I've, told you I'm comfortable with, which definitely does not seem like it's it's happening here. So yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, again, the letter writer, of course, this is coming from a place of love, but the over-analysis here and the, the wanting to sort of step in and fix things, like, I wonder if that's really what this friendship needs in this moment. Yeah. And again, so not to say like, you must have caused Kevin's privacy by being intrusive. I don't mean that at all. I just mean... Keep, keep a careful handbrake on the um, helpful concern. Because again, you, you may even be perfectly right about the family stuff and the religion stuff, but if Kevin is not asking for that kind of feedback and is not yet looking to change those relationships, I think at best, that's going to be advice that falls on kind of dry soil. And at worst, it, it could make him feel studied um, or condescended to, or just kind of invaded. Um, like you feel that you have the right to tell him how to run his life. Like these are going to be his areas that he probably makes some mistakes in or some areas where he probably holds back a lot. And it's one thing if um, you're having a conversation and he kind of invites more feedback from you, or if occasionally you ask like, how's work going? How are you doing? And he says, gosh, it's just really hard. I feel really awful all the time. Of course, by all means, you can say, you know, I really hope you consider looking for another job. I think you deserve better and your company doesn't look out for you in the same way you look out for them. By all means, you know, say that once in a while. I don't want you to feel like you can never encourage a friend to take better care of themselves, but just be be judicious about it um, and, you know, read the room. But yeah, I I would just say again, the stuff with Billy feels to me like that's the place where you know the least. The employee stuff, the family stuff, the religion stuff, you have some more history there, but you know very little about Billy. So, you know, if anything, I I would even encourage you to maybe say to Kevin, hey, I'm really like 
glad for you that you're going to get to spend more time with this partner. And I would just love to know more about how you guys met. I don't want you to feel mm-hmm. like you have to, you know, tell me everything. But, you know, are you excited? Are you nervous? Do you get a lot out of this relationship? Like, just just tell me a little bit about how you are. And then genuinely just listen, not with the goal of giving him advice or telling him what to do, but just for the sort of point of learning more. Um, and, you know, thank him if he does. And And I think you will get a fuller picture and just keep reminding yourself, you know, even if he ends up thinking later that it was a mistake, I'm probably not going to be the friend who changes the habit of a lifetime of like being a little bit of a caretaker (laughs) for partners. And so that can take some of the pressure off of like, I've got to talk Kevin out of like making this big move and making this big mistake. Like you're not going to be able to do that. So just let go of that project. Yeah, exactly. The project Yeah, because if anything, it's just, I think it's a little possible here that while he cares about you guys and is genuinely sad to miss Thanksgiving, he might also feel a little bit, I don't know. Again, this is like my own counter narrative. So I could be very, very wrong. But I wonder if he doesn't feel a little bit like, well, none of my friends are really eager to learn that much about, you know, Billy or my new relationship. And maybe I've partly brought that on myself by not being forthcoming, but I still feel a little down about it. And maybe I just want to go focus on my new life somewhere else. And, I think that's a, that's a possibility too if your only response to this new relationship has been, but what about Thanksgiving and asking a lot if he's going to come and know like, how cool for you? Tell us more about it. I'm, I'm, are you excited? Then yeah, I could see why he'd be a little distant too. I think if he if he really is a compartmentalizer and he feels like this is now a separate compartment of my life so that my relationship, I feel like needs to be separate from this friend group for whatever reason, we don't know why. My suspicion is that that the only thing that's going to change that is time. And as Mm. you said, maybe like slow conversations where the letter writer is getting to know Billy through Kevin sharing on the phone. Like it's going to happen very slowly and and maybe eventually Kevin will feel comfortable enough to, to open up. But that is a journey that Kevin needs to be on. And I'm kind of similar, right? Like I, for a long time, I was very, I kept my work and my personal life very separate. And, and it wasn't like someone pushed me to change that. What happened was I just I got more comfortable with my colleagues. They were sharing more with me. And over time, I started opening up a little bit, but it was a very long, slow process. Um, And I didn't feel pressured from my colleagues to share more. I didn't feel pressured from my friends to know more. You know, it just happened over time. So again, I think like be open to things shifting. Like this feels like a really abrupt thing that he moved and there's some grief around that and there's some sadness for Mm -hmm. things weren't like they used to be, but we don't know what will happen in the future. Things can shift. Yeah. And it's also just, you know, some of this I think just has to do with everyone has different relationships to change. Like what for, you know, one person might feel like we've had this weekly standing online meetup every week for years and now someone's not coming as often and I'm really hurt by that. And somebody else might feel like I've been for years attending this weekly online meetup with these people and now I want to do something a little bit different and I'm getting mm-hmm. flack and I just feel like I didn't sign up to do this for the rest of my Forever. life. <laughs> right. Like I want people to be able to roll with some changes while still understanding like I still care about you. We'll still catch up sometimes. Again, like right. there's lots of give and take with long-standing friendships, but I think one of the reasons they can start to get complicated is the longer you've been friends with someone, sometimes the more you feel like I know the truest version of you and that's 
the version of you that I knew when we came to be first to be close. And that can sometimes itself start to feel stultifying. And again, that doesn't mean old friendships are doomed um, to, to fail because not everyone can, you know, uh, accept change joyfully right away, just that that can be a possible pitfall to watch out for. Yeah. Good luck. Let us know how things go. I would love to hear more. You know, I, again, I, I know even less about Kevin than you do, letter writer. So some of my own guesses um, or theories might have been way off base. And if you two end up having more of a conversation and he does confirm, like, actually, yeah, I am kind of struggling and I'm not really sure what to do, you know, by all means, let us know. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think we should probably uh, move on to our next question, which I'm very excited about. This also came with a brief like follow-up um, that I don't think adds a ton, but I will read just for, in the interest of having all the information. So the subject is resentfully in love. Against my better judgment, I have fallen in love with someone who is involved with someone else. But that's not the real barrier. The bigger issue is that he's polyamorous and I'm not. We see each other weekly. His trips to see his other casual sexual partner usually overlaps with our own visits, and he'll often ask to see me before or after seeing his other partner. This leaves me feeling a bit taken advantage of, like he's using me as a source of emotional intimacy while denying me sexual and overtly romantic intimacy. I feel like a de facto poly partner, but with none of the security that being in a relationship would provide. I don't think he's doing this on purpose, but it does cause me pain and sorrow. I wish I could just fall out of love with him. I know the best thing to do would be to spend less time with him. But A, I don't want to do that. He's my favorite. And B, I can't just suddenly stop seeing him without deeply hurting him. So I would have to talk to him about it. And I can't imagine anything more mortifying. If I were a stronger person, I would ask you for a script that I could use with him. But if I were that brave, I would be able to tell him all of this myself without one. Because it's not lack of clarity holding me back. I want to be in love and to be happy about it. And that's not going to happen with him. He deserves better. I deserve better. What do I do? And then just for 
your, your own benefit as well as mine. I'll read a bit of the sort of like addendum. I'd like to clarify what I asked. Basically, my thought is I'm feeling shitty when he goes to see his lover slash my unofficial metamor. Like I'm doing the emotional stuff of being in a committed relationship without the security of emotional romantic commitment and a sexual relationship. And I feel sort of used when he asks to see me to bookend his visits to his lover. I realize that nothing will change unless I talk to him about it. And I don't want to talk to him about this thing with his lover that's especially painful because of my feelings for him. And also, I don't want to lose what we have. But please do give me a script in case I reach a point where I do want things to change. Okay, so I I, I will now amend uh, my own assessment of the amendment, which is that it gave us no new information rather than very little information. Um, It was simply a restating the facts of the case. So there we are. Uh, Lots of feelings followed by more feelings. and. I always, always love a letter that opens just like that, the scene in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice uh, of, you know, I've, I've, I've fallen for you against my better judgment and even my, my inclinations, my, my nature, I think. Uh, well, again, sounds like it sucks. And I'm sorry. And this is for people who are in polyamorous relationships. I'm sure this comes up. But also for people who are not in polyamorous relationships, this can come up in terms of people cheating or um, people who you're in a relationship seeing ex-partners in some capacity still, or it's sort of like, I don't feel good about that. So I know that feeling and that feeling, and it just like sort of hits you in your gut and you're just like, Ooh, I don't feel good about this. I do not want this happening, but I think you're getting some things right here. So I think if I go back to the line of, If I were a stronger person, I would ask you for a script. But if I were that brave, um, but it's not lack of clarity that's holding me back. So you do have total clarity, which is really good. I think that's the first step. Mm. You know that this is not something that you can deal with for a long period of time. Um, And you feel like this is not a sustainable thing for you to continue to have as emotions. So something needs to change here. And that's good, right? Because that makes us act. Um, my, my co-author and I talk a lot about difficult conversations and it seems like you might have a difficult conversation coming up here. Mm. Um, and the only thing that's going to push us into having a difficult conversation is those difficult emotions, right? Cause otherwise we'd be like, it's not worth it. This is, <laughs> this is not going to feel good as a conversation. Maybe it will feel good after, but like, it's not going to feel good during the moment to try to bring this up. So I want you to just hold on to that clarity and to harness that feeling because that is what is going to give you the energy to go forward and, and to do what you need to do. I, I think that's a lovely and generous approach. And I think I'd like to begin my own sort of assessment with uh, another quote from a movie that I love. This one's from Sharon Moonstruck. Snap out of it. Um, this is, <laughs> uh, you know, and I say that really, you know, with a lot of affection letter writer. But I just want to read back some of what you say here. Um, I wish I could just fall out of love with him. I'm not brave. If I were a stronger person, I could tell the truth, but I'm not. In case I reach a point where I want things to change. To me, this is like, I'm the little engine that couldn't. Just, I'm so in love and so weak in my love that it is impossible for me to be honest about what I want to tell the truth about my feelings, or to say anything to this guy I'm seeing that I don't think he doesn't want to hear. 
And to me, that says you are committed to dishonesty in this relationship. I'm sure you wouldn't yourself put it in so many words, but that's what you've told me in this letter. And that, as you know, is a recipe for self-loathing, like highly precipitate feelings of rejection before you have in fact being rejected, and kind of an excuse to really indulge in self-loathing in a way that I think you're probably getting something out of, even though you would probably swear up and down you hate this feeling and would do anything to avoid it. So I I know I said I say that lovingly, and then I just said something fairly (laughs) harsh. So, you know, feel free to get annoyed with me. But you've really done a sort of classically unpleasant thing that monogamous people sometimes do, which it sounds like this guy's been pretty straightforward with you from the beginning. And you either said, I'm okay with that, or I'm willing to like try it, possibly knowing full well that that was something you would hate more than anything else. And now every time he is trying to make plans with you that are coordinating with when he's in town, you're like tallying up this little rack in your mind of how many points his other partner has and how many points you have. And if he wanted to see you and he hadn't seen her that day, then you'd get full relationship points. But if he was dating somebody else on that same day, then you're basically just like a used rag. Um, And he's not bringing this energy to you. This is something you're bringing into this relationship. And so it's just like a guaranteed way to keep hurting your own feelings. And I cannot more strongly urge you to let go of the self-loathing and self-pity that is going to keep you on this hamster wheel because that's going to make you go running back for more, look for more reasons that he doesn't really respect you, doesn't really admire you. If he really liked me, he'd give me security. And when you say security, you mean monogamy letter writer. I want that to be crystal clear. What you mean is security, respect, and real intimacy are only things that come with sexual exclusivity. And if I can't get him to give me those things by being so lovable in this relationship that he changes his mind about what he wants, then I've truly failed as a human being. And that is just a recipe for hurting your own feelings. And it's going to um, really hurt this other person who, based on what you've said here, is being pretty honest and straightforward with you about what he wants and what he's capable of offering. And I think he deserves the same in return. So I think that's the script you need for yourself. My like dear friend, uh, who I, I really, I feel you, I see where you're coming from. I've seen this happen many, many times. Um, and I would like to spare you some more unnecessary heartache. But your, your options, as you already know, are either A, tell this guy that I actually hate being in this arrangement, or hate it a lot, pretend I'm fine with it, and then just grit my teeth until my molars start falling out. And so the choice (laughs) is yours. You can do whichever one you want. You're allowed to flagellate yourself all day if that is what feels good. But you you know, you don't even have to be brave about it. You you can you can say it (laughs) in any cowardly (laughs) way that you want. Um frankly, I think the braver thing is to be like on this fucking hamster wheel, which just sounds miserable. And, and, you know, again, letter writer, I can't suddenly stop seeing him without deeply hurting him. My friend, do you hear yourself? You know better than this. I'm trying to say this in a bracing tone because <laughs> I want to lovingly chide you out of this awful position you've put yourself in. Um, you know, because you are a human being who lives in the world, that whenever you date someone, whenever you get involved in a romance, if you don't stay together until you die, you break up. And that all of those breakups are precipitated by a conversation where somebody's feelings get hurt. So this idea of I couldn't possibly stop seeing him because his feelings would be hurt. 
let's go ahead and, and, and try to dig a little bit into that one and say, maybe I need to believe that I'm capable of hurting him in the same way that I believe he is currently hurting me by not offering me monogamy. And I don't want to relinquish that power fantasy because if I did tell him that this wasn't working out and he said, I'm really sorry to hear that. I'll miss you. Then that would make me feel more rejected than ever. Hmm. Whew, that was a, that was a monologue. Yes. Yes. I totally agree with everything you said. And it can be so hard to hear that, but you know, sometime, sometime in the future, you're going to look back and say that was helpful. That was it's, right. <laughs> it's the not hitting yourself school of dating, which is don't hit yourself. And if somebody else having another partner makes you feel this miserable, the next time you meet somebody who dates multiple people, even if you really, really like them, do not try to psych yourself up and say, I could maybe make that work this time. And then like, you know, clutch a a mug so tightly that it shatters the second he leaves the room. Like there's no invisible television documentary crew following you around documenting um, how majestically you bear your pain. Um, You are not patience on a monument smiling at grief. He said to himself at 25. Um, and that's, I think that's why I'm being like a little hard on this letter writer is because I'm just like, I know what this is like. And I know that you're putting on this. Um, and again, that none of this means that you're putting it on because you don't really feel it, but that you, in fact, um, deeply enjoy the tragedy of your own experience, even as it's causing you to suffer. And that's like the one thing you're holding on to. But, you know, just either stop seeing him or be miserable and continue to suffer. Those are your options. There's no option where you do such a good job suffering that he says, it's not like the loathly lady of medieval legend where, you know, he's suddenly going to reveal, ah, I was secretly monogamous all the time. And because you have borne all these sufferings so well, I now cast my other less worthy lovers into the flames and I will dedicate myself to you and only to you until I, until the stars turn cold. That day's not going to come. You're not going to change him. And I think that's, yeah. Yeah. And he's not dating multiple people because he thinks you're not enough. He's not doing this because you failed some test. This is the way that he likes to date people. And in fact, he never comes to see you from his other partner thinking, oh, good thing I got to see my other partner because this lady's just half as good. Um, He's just thinking, this is great. I got to see someone I really enjoy seeing and now I'm going to go see someone else I really enjoy seeing. Um, And you don't have to understand it or like it or even respect it. But if you're going to try to participate in it with him, Um, You've got to be honest with both him and yourself about how it makes you feel. And he's not keeping score the way that you're keeping score. And if you can't let go of this scorekeeping, then you need to let go of him or else you're going to do something that means the two of you will cross the street to avoid each other after your breakup. And I think it's it's perfectly okay to feel like that. Like, I couldn't be in a polyamorous relationship. Lots of people could not be. So those feelings are totally normal, but you have to listen to them. Like, your emotions are telling you something that that's not the type of relationship that you want to have. And you're sort of trying to squash them and, and like, put them under a rug. Mm-hmm. And that's only going to make them worse. You have to accept that that's not right for you. It's not right for many people. That's fine. Yeah. And there are other people out there who are willing to be in a committed relationship. Um, and I think that's that's the thing that's so hard with anyone in a relationship that's not working is that sometimes there's this drag where you're like, okay, I'm going to stay in this because at least it's better than being alone. This person hasn't said this, but 
you know, I've been there and I can imagine being like, well, it's scary. I'm going to have to go out and find someone else. I'm going to have to date again. That sucks. Mm -hmm. You know, at least I have this person for some of the time. Maybe that's better than nothing. But what that's doing is preventing you from doing the work to find someone who does want to be solely committed to you. So there is going to be a period if you do end things with this person and you are dating where it's going to feel almost worse because you don't have this person at all anymore. But you have to do that. You have to open up that space to find something better. And I know that you will. It's just sort of taking like a leap of faith in the meantime and not plugging that hole with something that you're not sure is going to work out. Yeah. And just, you know, you wouldn't want him to do what you're doing to him. You would not want him to say, yes, I could be in a monogamous relationship if that's what you want, and then secretly hate it and resent you the whole time. That would make you feel miserable if you ever found that out. So don't do that shit to him. Golden rule, my friend. And just that last that last bit about, I feel like I'm doing the emotional stuff of being in a committed relationship. And I just don't see anything here that suggests that he's been asking that of you. I think what you mean when you say that is, I have fallen in love with him. And I want that love to be monogamous. And that is synonymous with the quote-unquote emotional work, emotional stuff of being in a committed relationship. That's not. That's a feeling. You are confusing two things that are very different. And if you're resentful that you feel monogamous love for him without getting monogamous love back from him when he has told you that that is not something he does or wants, that, my friend, is just you going to, you know, a pharmacy and getting angry that it's not a malt shop. That was a terrible <laughs> analogy because pharmacies and drugstores kind of did used to be malt shops. Um, it's like going to a library and being mad that it's not also, um, I don't know why I'm having a really hard time coming up with analogies today. It's like going to a library and being really mad that it's not also a bank. It's a library. It's not a bank. Don't get mad at it. Go to the bank if you want to go to the bank. Oh, um, that's my script for you, letter writer. <laughs> I'm sorry if that came off really heated. I feel these things very strongly, and I want you not to do the things that you've been doing because I think it is such a wasted set of energy and affection and resentment that will only cause you and this guy harm. Um, and I do want better for you. And I think he's not the one who wrote to me. Based on what you've described to me here, I don't think he's tried to, like— get you to do anything under false pretenses or is, you know, mistreating you. I think that you need to stop hitting yourself. And I sure hope you do because um, it's no fun. It's not a good way to live. Um, write us back. Let us know how you're doing. Let us know if you ever decide to tell this guy what you're feeling or if you decide to continue the strategy of keeping it all inside and then smashing coffee cups. <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, we're we're a little more than halfway through. How how are you feeling? I'm feeling well, good. Thank you. I am enjoying talking these through with you. We're we're covering a lot of ground, um, and you know, it feels good to to talk about these things that again are hard. It's these these things are are really tough, and I appreciate that people are willing to share them with us. Absolutely, and just you know, again. With so much love, I have personally never been or behaved more deranged 
than when I have been the most like romantically involved in my life. And so I, this is not me coming from a place of, oh, who don't care so much. Like I go, I have always gone like full uh, operatic, you know, dying on stage for four hours, turning my head to cough and then singing an aria. And I frankly think that's one of the most sort of like interesting, fun ways to conduct your romantic life. As long as you can also eventually smooth some of that out with like, a little bit of like, I don't know, a dowager grandmother from a 1930s screwball <laughs> comedy who's always like, calm down. Well, also it's, I mean, when you find the right person, that person is so deserving of all of that passion that you bring and that this letter writer brings. Like I think about, you know, you have so much love to give to someone in a monogamous way that you want to. And there's someone out there who will love being on the receiving end of it. It's mm-hmm. not this person. But there is someone and you're going to find that person. And so like everything that you're feeling is real and don't lose that passion. It's so helpful and so awesome in relationships. Yeah, the passion's not the problem. Love the passion. Love the energy, as they say. Um, I'm thinking so much too, as you say that, of like, I think one of the most difficult emotional combinations is somebody who's got huge feelings or big expectations and for one reason or another feels that the easiest or safest or most practical way to go about finding an appropriate avenue for those things is to communicate very little about them and to act incredibly easygoing. And that that, I I think like if I were to have like a general theory of feelings, I would probably say that's maybe the worst combination you can have. Um, mostly just for yourself. And I don't know if that's something that you've come across as an idea um, in some of your own work about specifically big feelings, but that's a combination I see often, which is I actually want to eat the moon, but I'm I'm pretty sure for whatever reason, I'll never get it. So if anyone asks me if I'm hungry, I'll say something like, oh no, I just ate. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. We, we, we talk about this more in a workplace context, but it's true for all relationships. So There are people, there's a spectrum um, of being an over-emoter or an under-emoter. So over-emoters tend to really show their emotions on their sleeve. You can tell what they're thinking. They get really passionate about things. They're really good people to go to when you want to get really excited about something because they are going to get so excited with you. Mm. And then on the under-emoter side, people are harder to read. Um, People are going to often say, you know, it's hard for me to tell what you're thinking right now. And it's good to go to them when you are, or you're having a really strong emotion and you want someone to like help you calm down or to sort of like have a bucket to sort of put your emotions in and talk through them in a calm way. One isn't good or bad. They're just different. And then you can be in the middle. You can be, you know, anywhere along that spectrum or be an even emoter somewhere in the middle. But I think what you're talking about is when you truly are an over emoter and when you feel like in a relationship or a, or a setting, and this happens a lot at work, where you feel like you can't be that, you mm. can't be true to that because other people around you are not going to accept that. They don't want to hear what you have to say. Your emotions are too big. You're too much. And that is particularly harmful because you're still having those emotions and your way of processing those emotions is to express them but you're not able to express them or you don't feel safe expressing them. So you're keeping them inside and they do build up over time. Um, But it's just, you know, it's so important. Like I love, I'm an under-emoter, but I love over-emoters. My husband is an over-emoter. I love working with over-emoters because they're so alive and like I get energy from them and they encourage me to open up a little bit. Um, So there's like really good qualities of that, but you have to be in a space where that's okay. So to go back to the second letter writer, like, you know, 
another part of this we didn't talk about was the fact that you don't feel like you can be honest. And probably not just with this, like probably there's some part of you that over motor side that you feel like maybe you have to keep inside. And and that's sort of a red flag. Like even if the other person isn't as much as an over motor, we want them to love you for being an over motor. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, now that we're a little bit out of having directly addressed the the second letter, I'm curious if you found in, in your book, were you mostly thinking about emotions at work in terms of employees, in terms of employers, in terms of like white collar contexts, in terms of like freelance contexts? Do you find that that kind of the advice or suggestions you would offer very uh, wildly depending on that context? Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, in, in our book that, that just came out this year, Big Feelings, we did talk about work and life. Um, so we talked about dealing with big feelings like uncertainty, um, anxiety, um, despair, comparison in work and life. And in work, we did try to get a huge variety. So myself and my co-author were two straight white women, but we understand that we don't have as much lived experience to talk about all other types of lived experience. So we we interviewed a bunch of people for the book who have different lived experiences than our own. Um, And as you said, some are white collar, some are more blue collar, definitely freelance, um, people in school, people who have retired, um, all sorts of things. And then the first book that we wrote, No Hard Feelings, was strictly about um, emotions in the workplace. Mm. Yeah, I just, I I find myself even just like a little bit wrung out, kind of thinking back of all the different feelings that these two questions have like brought up in Mm. me. So I think one of the things that I'm sort of aware of is like, it really is nice. Not it, it doesn't, I think, strike me as actually true that when people say, like, you never love like you did when you were an adolescent um, or as you <laughs> age, all your feelings sort of calm down. But I do think that, like, I hit the sort of, like, absolute peak of my emotional intensity, probably somewhere between 17 and 25. And it is yep. it is nice even just to be like, yeah, I still have, like, big swings and, and, and ups and downs sometimes. But, like, just to have come down, like, a good 8 to 10%. It's a real relief without feeling like I'm an entirely different person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is that is a nice thing about aging. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it, it, life does a lot of things to us, and I think it helps put some things in perspective. It also opens us up to lots of tough emotions that come from lots of different things. So the first letter was about friendships, all the tough things that can come with friendships. And I definitely had way more like big friend blowouts when I was, as you said, like a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at this point, like there's stuff that's really hard for me about friendships, but I've been through a little bit more of it. So I know a little bit more of the ups and downs in the friendships. And also I've been on both the, the giving and the receiving end. And, and I think, you know, that's what I was mentioning previously of like, mm-hmm. I think I had always prided myself on being a really good friend and always calling people back and always being there for people. Mm -hmm. And then I went through a really tough time period. I was extremely depressed. I was dealing with chronic pain. I was having suicidal thoughts. I was just sort of going through it. And I did not have energy for all those friendships. And I was like, oh, like, I get it. Like, I understand why people may have dropped out of my life previously. And it had nothing to do with me. And I took it so personally. Right. So I think, you know, the longer that we live, the more that we, we just fortunately or unfortunately live through lots of different emotions and sort of see them for ourselves, which the silver lining of that is it does give us more empathy for what other people are going through. Um, doesn't mean that we would have wished that that would have happened or makes the 
intermediate, big emotions, you know, any easier, but it certainly is, um, it gives us more compassion and more empathy. Yeah, man, I, I think that is so true. And I think in my own uh, experiences, and again, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't mean to talk as if I'm like some incredibly wise, like elder, I'm, I'm 36, I'm a, I'm a medium <laughs> age. Uh, but I think one of the reasons that I had lots to say on both of these first two letters was, uh, you know, one of the issues I've run into in my own friendships in in my life is one of them is I, I can often get really proprietary over people that I've known for a while, sometimes mm. even over people I've just come to know. But I really decide like, no, 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 I'm really like, I'm smart. I'm intuitive. I know what's best for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this like pattern in your life before you can see it. And like, maybe I'll even decide to tell you one day. And it's just like, often that is just pure baseless speculation or or none of my business. And so I think one of the lessons I really learned in my like later 20s and 30s was I need to take more opportunities to say, I actually don't know this person better than they know themselves. And I should take people at their word when they say that they're, you know, committed to a decision or happy with something and not like seek to tell someone that they should be something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then certainly another one is, and this is sometimes in friendships, sometimes in romantic relationships, I can get really attached to cultivating an internal sense of slights or rejection that on the one hand feel incredibly painful, but that on the other hand, I have kept seeking out and have not like actually prevented by being honest and forthright about things I knew perfectly well that I wanted. And so created a lot of unnecessary pain for myself in terms of just like, I'm going to assume that's a rejection. I'm going to assume that's because you don't really care about me. I'm not going to tell you my feelings are hurt. And I'm going to keep playing to that invisible camera as if someone's making a documentary like that's going to come out someday that's like, Danny, he suffered so, but you never knew. And I was just like, why do I think that's happening? Like, what, what camera do I think I'm playing to when I do this little like martyring act um, and it really improved my life immeasurably when I slowly and surely started to do a little bit less of that. It's still something that I have to work on. It's not something that goes away immediately. And it doesn't mean that I never take my own pain or suffering seriously. It just means that it's sometimes more pleasurable to climb on the cross than we want to admit to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's it's difficult to say like, yes, I have like, a, you know, a real reason for being hurt but I have also become deeply attached to the way in which I was hurt. And I'm even kind of recreating those circumstances so I can feel sorry for myself and no one's forcing me to do that. Well, I think that sort of, we call that like mental gymnastics that you do. <laughs> like that does in the short term, make the suffering more bearable mm-hmm. because you're like, look at me, I'm doing such a good job of dealing with this and dealing with the suffering. And, you know, I'm I'm really... I'm holding it all together, even though this is tough. And it it somehow makes that easier. But in the long term, it's like, yeah, there's no, like, there's no prize at the end of your life for dealing with that much suffering and right. for, you know, like going down that route. Like ultimately, we just want you to be happy and to be true to what you know to be your boundaries and your limits and your preferences. And um, yeah, I think you're right that sometimes we can get into that that's playing and in the long term, not, not always helpful. 
yeah, that's a, a lesson I've had to learn many times and, <laughs> and often. And yeah, as you say, it's just like there's already so many opportunities in life to encounter pain and suffering regardless. It's just like, don't worry, you're going to get plenty of occasions where you have real reason to say to like a friend or a loved one or a partner, you really hurt my feelings. Like you are not going to miss out on suffering um, that will come your way. Just don't unnecessarily add to it and you'll still get plenty. Molly, thank you. <laughs> so much for joining us. Thank um, you. You were just a delight. Please come back sometime. I would love to come back. Thank you for all that you do. Um, it's so helpful. And thank you to the people who wrote in yeah. for sharing with us. Absolutely. Well, have a fabulous rest of your day. Enjoy the few remaining minutes of daylight. Um, yes, and I will. Come you back too. soon. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. It's one thing if, like, you say, like, I have a responsibility to my community, but you said yourself at the top of the letter, you don't live there. You have very consciously made a different community for yourself elsewhere. And holding them accountable, like, it's one thing, like, if you were present and they did or said something that could be harmful to somebody else and you just, like, sat in silence because you were uncomfortable. That might be an instance where I would say, hey, you know, do something, hold them accountable. But just being around like a bunch of aunts and uncles and parents who are dicks to you, that's not holding them accountable to anything. That's just suffering for no reason. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.